What are the five most impactful changes in the final IRS regulations on Opportunity Zones? And what's the true story behind the Opportunity Zone designation in Story County, Nevada? Find out next as I speak with Senior Treasury Official Daniel Kowalski. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Last week, IRS final regulations on Opportunity Zones were published in the Federal Register, and they officially go into effect in March of 2020. Today's episode will focus mostly on the regulatory process, and there's no better person to discuss this with than my guest today, Senior Treasury Official Daniel Kowalski. Dan reports directly to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin on a variety of domestic policy issues, most importantly for our purposes today. Dan is the Secretary's lead on Opportunity Zones and has led the department's regulatory efforts. Dan first joined me on the Opportunity Zones podcast back in April of 2019 to discuss the proposed regulations, and today he joins us again, today from his office in Washington, D.C., to discuss the final regulations and the path that we took to get to this point. Dan, thank you for joining me again, and welcome back. Thank you, Jimmy. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Pleasure to be with you as always, Dan. Thank you. So first of all, overall, Dan, I want to commend you and your colleagues. I know this must have been an incredible amount of work and under a pretty good amount of scrutiny as well. A lot of eyeballs uh, watching what these regulations were going to turn out to be. But in the end, these regulations clarify a lot of uncertain issues and provide some much needed additional flexibility. Overall, they're very taxpayer friendly. Uh, which is a good thing. I'm hopeful that these final rules, having them finally in place, should help unlock a lot of capital and be good for the program overall moving forward. And pretty much everyone I've spoken with, almost everyone in the Opportunity Zone world, seems very happy with these with these regulations. But, of course, there are maybe a few sticking points. And firstly, and forgive me, I do jest somewhat when I ask this, but Dan, what took so long? Well, um, you know, there was... There was a lot of work to be done, and I feel that Treasury and the IRS have accomplished a lot in the last two years. When you think about what had to be done uh, over that time period, I think we've made we we made great time in getting the regulations to final in the two year period. When you think of it, we spent the first six months since Opportunity Zones was enacted on the nomination and certification of track. Uh, then it took us four months from that to get the first tranche of regulations out, some basic information about how do you go about setting funds up and, and doing the things that you, know, you would need to do to begin to revitalize these communities. Six months after that, we, we put out the second tranche, more guidance. And in the seven months since the second tranche, we reviewed the 307 comment letters that we received and really listened to what stakeholders were asking for in the regulations and, you know, got it through IRS review, Treasury Department review, OIRA review, and published in in seven months. So I feel that uh, we did a a pretty good job there, and I think... uh, 
I'm proud of it. No, I, I, I would agree with you. I think you guys did a good job, too. You know, I know the, the regulations were not finalized until December 19th, and that was less than two weeks before the 2019 year-end deadline to achieve the program's full tax benefit. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, there were a lot of Opportunity Zone participants who were frustrated by uh, the rulemaking process taking as long as it did. But I think by possibly by IRS regulatory uh, timeline standards, maybe you actually did uh, pretty quick work on this. Um, was there a lot of pressure on you to get the regulations out in a timely fashion? And, and what was it like having to work under under a tight schedule and, and under so much uh, scrutiny? Well, I think a lot of the pressure was our own, really. We were we were very interested in being able to put guidance out for people who wanted to see it before they pulled the trigger on something that they were thinking they might do in 2019. And I believe that, that um, while the 19th wasn't as soon as I would have liked, I would have liked more towards the beginning of the month, right? Um, I believe that there was enough time for people to, for the specific issue that they might be concerned about to be able to, to consult that, their final regs, and then, you know, get the answer that they needed or see whether it was there or not. So uh, while it was late, I believe it, it fit the needs of, of those people who were interested in specific issues. Um, I have to say, I found it to be a great experience the process of, of putting these regulations together. Uh, there are a number of people here at Treasury and the IRS who are committed to seeing this incentive work and a lot of good conversations about what changes needed to be made from the proposed based on the comments and other things that we have heard in order to uh, you know make it a better package in the final. So. Um, you know, a lot of work, a lot of long hours, um, maybe less for me than some other people who work here at Treasury and IRS, but uh, uh, all in all, I think it was a good product in the end. Yeah, I, I, I agree, and I've had a hard time finding anyone who, who disagrees with that. Uh, so I, I want to dive into the weeds a little bit now and, and discuss some of those changes between the proposed regulations, the two tranches of proposed regulations, and this final set of rules. What do you view as being some of the most meaningful changes that were made between those proposed regs and these final regs? Yeah, I, I'd say there were, say the top five, six or so that I uh, think are most impactful. I think the first one has to be the ability for QASBs, for the subsidiary entity, to be able to sell property and still be able to pass that uh, capital gain up to the investor without while, while receiving the 10-year tax benefit uh, was, I think, an incredibly important change and one that's going to make people uh, a lot more comfortable using the Opportunity Zone incentive. Another one that I think is uh, going to be particularly helpful is the changes we made to the treatment of Section 1231 business property. In our draft regulations and our proposed regulations, we had said that 1231 gains were netted at the end of the year, and your 180-day clock started at the end of the, of the tax year. 
well, we changed that to say that really you can use the gross gains from each sale and start the 180-day clock when you made the sale. What that means and what I have heard from market participants was that the old rules caused people to lose interest in OZ when they had to wait till the end of the year, say they sold something in March and they had to wait till December before they would be able to actually invest in the OZ. You don't want the money sitting around. You want to, you want to do something with it, right? You want to reinvest. And they're excited to do something with it at the time of sale. Now they're going to have the ability to do that. I think that's going to make it a lot easier for people who are selling the family business or, you know, who only really have or, or a building or something like that. Uh, where they only have one big business transaction per year, say, and they're able to then convert it into an OZ investment in their community that's going to be beneficial and that they're excited about. So I think that's, that's another one that's going to be huge. Um, aggregation, as you'll recall, our proposed regs said, Substantial improvement had to occur on an asset-by-asset asset basis, and we changed that in the final regulations to say that aggregation was okay. In particular, we said that non, that original use assets that can enhance the utility of the asset that needed to be improved could be aggregated so that you could make, it makes it easier for you to meet your substantial improvement test. And we give the example in the regulations of a hotel. It needs improvement, but you can't double the basis in the building alone. But a hotel needs other things. It needs beds, it needs sheets, it needs towels, it needs televisions, it needs furniture. and all these things are new investment in the community and makes what might have been a, uh, a threadbare property into something that's inviting and that people will come to. Now you can count all of that for substantial improvement. And I think that will make a big difference for people who are concerned that, you know, it just takes too much cash to substantially improve a property in an opportunity zone, and now they have a way in which they can do other things to enhance the utility of the building and uh, and include that in the original use. So I think that'll be big. Uh, we also did aggregation with respect to buildings on a, on a single or adjacent plots of land. So think of the case of a um, office building complex, say you had three buildings. One of them has been vacant for a while and is in need of a lot of improvement. One of them is in pretty good shape and one's in the middle. Well, now you can put more money in the building where it's needed and less in the building where it's not, and some across the three buildings in determining whether or not the uh, substantial improvement standard has been met. And I think that's going to make it easier for people to do work in uh, some of these uh, zones as well. So I think that's a big thing. Uh, the changes we made to vacancy, I think, are also go going to be uh, useful 
in our proposed regs, we said a property had to be vacant for five years before it could qualify for original use treatment. We changed that in the final to say one year if it was vacant on the date when, it, when the zone was designated as an opportunity zone, generally July of uh, 2018 for most properties uh, or for most zones. And if it wasn't vacant on the day that, that it was designated an opportunity zone, three years down from five. So this is going to encourage the recycling of properties that uh, are eyesores, have been eyesores, have been underutilized, and, and encourage opportunity zone money to go in there and help revitalize those buildings. That'll be big. I think the last one I'll mention will be um, leasing. We had made a provision, we, we said in our original regs that all leasing transactions have to be arm's length and sort of certified as such. We've said, look, if it's, if it's between unrelated parties, we'll presume that it's arm's length. That'll make it a little easier to do the transaction. And I think more importantly, we've said that for state and local governments that want it, and Indian tribal government, if they want to do a below market lease in order to encourage somebody to come in and do a development project on land that they own, that that's okay. And so this is gonna be a way for communities that have underutilized vacant property, but no money, can contribute their, their land through a lease and be able to essentially subsidize, say, low-income housing or work, workforce housing uh, in these opportunity zones. And I think that will, over time, become a very big thing, too. So that's a, a handful of the things that we did that I think are going to be really impactful in making the uh, incentive usable and attractive to both communities and investors. Yeah, that's that's great, Dan. I, I I agree with you. So just to recap those those five points that you brought up: one, allowing QOZB asset sales to uh, qualify for the the capital gain tax benefit for investors right. is big, and and will will open up the ability uh, or make investors more comfortable with forming multi-asset funds, I think is is one of the big um, implications there. Two, Section 1231 gains, allowing the uh, gross gains uh, before it's netted out to be invested in a more timely fashion. Uh, three, you brought up aggregation of assets uh, in terms of applying the substantial improvement test in, in certain cases, the hotel being a great example. Uh, four, the vacancy rules were relaxed from five years to either one or three, depending on the circumstance. And then, and then, uh, and then the, the fifth one was uh, flexibility with respect to to leasing. So I think, yeah, all all of those all those points should uh, should help considerably make investors more comfortable with uh, investing in qualified opportunity funds. By the way, a good restatement there. Oh, thank you, Dan. Thank you. Now, I want to ask you now about um, an issue that was. Uh, Brought up in the proposed regulations, uh, Treasury kind of punted this issue to the final regs, but then it what, it ended up not being addressed in the final regs either. And that, that issue is that there doesn't appear to be a clearly stated threshold for 
failing the 90% asset test at the qualified opportunity fund level. So I'll ask you now, is there a failure limit? And at what point would a QOF that continuously fails the 90% test be decertified? You're, you're right that we have not addressed the mechanics of what would happen in this case. We feel it's very difficult to put a hard and fast rule down right now about at what point does failing the 90% investment standard cause you to lose your, your status as a QAF. Uh, the statute basically says, as long as you say you're a QAF, you're a QAF, and you pay a penalty. And what we need to consider further is, do we provide guidance at what point does the failure mean you're no longer a QAF? And then more importantly, what does that mean for the tax status of the investor's dollars that the QAF has? And I think it's that second part that's particularly concerning because, well, say it's four years into the QAF's existence, you've been an investor from day one, do you have to go back and restate your income tax return from the from, from four years ago in order to say that you include the gain there? So these are tough issues that need to be, be thought through. I think there are uh, concerns about, well, if you tell people what's the line, then they'll go to the line. It's sort of um, most people believe that, yeah, you can go 10 miles over the speed limit and you won't get a ticket. I, and, and so you go eight or nine miles over the speed limit and feel that you're, you're okay. And we don't really necessarily want to encourage that kind of behavior either, right? I mean, what, what we want is a quaff to make a good faith effort to meet its marks and be into the the 90% test. I, I think when you look at, we provided this cure period in the regulations for QOZB that may have failed to meet their 70% mark, that as long as they cure it within six months, it'll be okay. So we're trying to make it possible for people to not have purely technical problems with reaching their mark. And so, you know, you want to kind of be able to separate out the bad faith actors from the good faith actors. And that's uh, oftentimes a facts and circumstances kind of examination rather than a bright line test. I got you. So I would, I would uh, probably advise anyone listening to, to not challenge the IRS and the Treasury Department, not, uh, <laughs> not, not clearly run afoul of the 90% test for too long because your department does have a broad anti-abuse rule that can kick in and you can, you can, you can go to any of these funds and, and decertify them at, at any point in time if, if, they're, if it's clear that they're not adhering to the uh, intent of the, of the law. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and, and I think to state at the outset when we really haven't seen what the variety of marketplace activity will look like to, to try and declare in advance what, it, what an abusive situation is may just be inviting more of it, right? No, I, under, I understand you. Yeah. So that, that omission of 
a bright line test was uh, was done purposefully, and and perhaps at some point down the road you will clarify with some additional uh, guidance. I think that's right. I think there are no there are no there is no schedule for addressing that because it's not something that somebody operating within the spirit of the OZ incentive really needs to know, right? But as we get more experience with QAFs and what QAFs are doing and how they're structuring it and, and as, um, examinations do take place, you know, years into the future, then you'll have an idea of at what point does it look like people are going farther than the spirit might might suggest and how and and how do we provide guidance on on where that is but I, but it's not time for that yet okay i think that's fair this is a brand new investment vehicle after all it's a brand new investment vehicle not just to the investors and to the fund sponsors and to the businesses but also also for the regulatory body you guys have to kind of see what uh, what actually transpires in the real world I, I i get that that makes sense mm-hmm. and i think that's that's right a couple questions now regarding triple net leasing businesses. I, I get asked these questions uh, every once in a while by, by some of my followers, some of my listeners. Uh, I've got two different questions for you. I'll ask one at a time. First question regarding triple net leasing businesses. Why do the regulations disallow triple net leasing from being eligible for uh, as a qualified opportunity zone business in the first place? If I'm if I'm bringing a pharmacy or a grocery store into an opportunity zone, why does it matter if I do it through a triple net lease structure? Well, remember that the that the clause B has to be in the conduct of an active trade or business. And generally rental real estate is has not been considered to be an active trade or business. And so we felt it would be too far to say something that is clearly passive. A triple net lease is a pretty passive activity, right? Uh, to to say that that's an active trader business, and so I think that's the that's the first thing here is that ultimately part of what Opportunity Zone should promote is engagement with the community, and that's where the uh, triple net lease doesn't really kind of fit with that engagement of the uh, QAF investor into the community. Now, we have said that, but we understand that what's important is that the QAF be, be a QAF be, be an active trader business. So if part of your business is doing triple net leases, but not all of your business is doing triple net leases, that's something to take into consideration. And this gets into the example of the um, three-story office building that we had in the regulations. Yeah, so that was, the, that was actually the second question I want to ask you. At what point does a triple net leasing business rise to the level of being an active trader business, the examples, I, I thought the examples provided in the regulations opened up some ambiguity. Okay, so it's, it's clearly stated that, you know, if you're just doing triple net leasing, if you have one tenant in one building, that's clearly not an active trader business. Okay, I can get behind that. And then, but then what if you have, I forget the exact example in the regs, but what if you have uh, 100 tenants and 99 of them 
are triple net lease, but only one of them is, you know, you, you're doing some, some management on, and it's not a triple net lease. Is, is that sufficient or, or is there no, is there no clearly defined line there? Well, there is no clearly defined line. Uh, ultimately, I think, I think that's a good thing. Um, the example of the two floors with a traditional rental situation and the third floor being a triple net uh, suggests you've got a two-thirds, one-third kind of split, right? Uh, I think one can... I think one can think, you know, back to a lot of the language that we use in, in opportunity zones about substantially, right? I think I think if you're substantially in the triple net business, you you will not be an active trader business, right? If if it's the other way around, that you know, substantially you're you're actively managing the real property that you own in the zone, but you have some clients for whom a triple net just makes sense, that that, that's going to be okay. But again, um, the better course for us, we thought, was to enable the taxpayer to make the argument that, in fact, what they're doing here is active rather than drawing the bright line test. Okay, I, I I think that makes a little more sense now. If I if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like, you know, if if you keep at least two thirds or seventy percent, you know, applying that substantially all uh, definition, if you if you if you keep to that ratio of active management versus, you know, thirty percent or a third being triple net leasing, then then you should be in good shape. I think you I think you you can you can confidently argue that you are not primarily engaged in the business of triple net leasing. You are not you are not that 991 example, right? Right, right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. I I didn't I didn't want to harp on that issue for too long, but I that's that's come up a few times with me and I wanted to make sure I understood and I think I do understand a little better now. So thank you for providing some of that clarity there. Dan, I want to shift gears here for a minute and ask you a couple of tough questions now about the designation of the Opportunity Zone in Story County, Nevada, that's been in the news uh, recently. Uh, the Treasury Department has been criticized in the New York Times and, and elsewhere in past weeks for allowing Opportunity Zone designation of this one particular census tract in Story County, Nevada, that uh, did not appear to meet the original eligibility criteria, at least according to CDFI fund instructions to the states. Very recently, Richard Delmar, the acting Treasury Inspector General, announced that he is opening an investigation into the Opportunity Zone selection process. So firstly, can you clarify for me and my listeners, how was it that Story County was designated in the first place? Well, ultimately, the state of Nevada asked us to reconsider the instructions that were provided by the CDFI for designating con- contingent tracts or contiguous tracts. Um, we, generally speaking, on opportunity zones, we said use the the uh, uh, twenty ten to twenty fifteen data 
which will provide us a safe harbor or use the 2011 to 2016 data, um, but you have to prove to us that in that case they meet the uh, statutory criteria for being nominated to be an opportunity zone. And in the CDFI instructions, that was clear for the regular tract, but not for the contiguous tract. Clear for the low-income community tracts, but not clear for the non-LIC contiguous tracts. Precisely. Um, and we also issued a revenue ruling regarding how the nomination process would work, in which case we said, without any distinction between LIC and non-LIC contiguous tracts, that a state could use the newer ACS data. And Nevada pointed out this discrepancy in the nomination instructions versus the revenue ruling. And then it really became for us uh, a legal determination of which was the controlling authority here, right? Um, and the revenue ruling has precedence over the instructions. The Nevada was the last state to get settled, okay? Uh, but we issued a policy memo in, internal to IRS saying that we made a mistake here. The nominating instruction should be modified in the future to reflect that a non-LIC contiguous tract could be nominated on the newer data and that, in fact, Nevada's petition was correct and that they should be designated. So that's really what happened here it was a, a, a distinction uh, between two sets of conflicting guidance and which one which one controlled. And so that's really, you know, it was really as simple as that. It, it, it all came from the state officials rather than anything that we here within Treasury initiated. So. Okay, I think, I think that makes sense to me. Um, so it, officially, according to the CDFI fund who issued the instructions, there were three ways that a tract could be eligible for Opportunity Zone designation. One, it could be a low-income community tract according to the 2015 ACS data. Two, it could be a low-income community tract according to 2016 ACS data. Or three, it could be a non-LIC a non contiguous tract according to 2015 ACS data. And Story County is not eligible by any of those three metrics. But it sounds like the CDFI fund left out a fourth way to become eligible, and that is to be a non-LIC continuous tract according to 2016 ACS data. And by that metric, Story County is, in fact, eligible. Um, did, did, I, did I recap that accurately? You, you did. And 
and essentially our revenue ruling said that all four of the cells that you enunciated were eligible, where the nomination instruction said only three of those are. Right. And then as it turned out, Story County does happen to be the only census tract that falls into that fourth cell, that that non-LIC contiguous tract, according to 2016 ACS data, uh, I, I suppose because they were the, the, the final state to, to get their nominations in and, and no other state had noticed uh, that that discrepancy and, and was, or, or perhaps the, the, the states were unaware that that fourth cell existed because of the, uh, the omission in the instructions. Is that right? That's right. Um, I, and one other state did, in fact, raise the matter. It was the state of Vermont. CDFI told them that they were not eligible, and they decided that that was an adequate answer to them. We um, at Treasury provided a pretty in-depth response to a letter from Senator Wyden on this, and that that Treasury's response is available on the uh, Finance Committee website. I will I will send the links to you after we get off uh, this call. I think that would be something that for people who really want to pursue it, they would be able to read it carefully, understand the situation that that we found ourselves in here, and get some of the um, other side of this that you didn't really see reported in the media. Right. No, I think that would be helpful. Uh, and I will link to that report, to that response in the show notes for today's episode. And you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And I'll be sure to link to that official Treasury response to uh, Senator Wyden's inquiry. Um, secondly, Dan, do you have any additional comment on the pending investigation by the by the acting in Treasury Inspector General? No. Uh, this was a, a, a congressional letter to the IG. IG is doing their job and following up on something that Congress asked them to do. And essentially, I think uh, the response that we provided to Senator Wyden and CC does Senator Grassley and Chairman Neal on uh, is essentially the same the same uh, fact that one would present to the IG. Okay, good. Uh, well, thank you for providing some clarity on on this issue. I know it hasn't been uh, re- your side hasn't been reported uh, very accurately or or in much depth from from everything I've read. So I'm glad. Right, not in much depth. It's right, exactly. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we were kind of able to finally get to the bottom of this, and hopefully some people listen to this and and uh, and are able to read your your response and get get some more factual information, some more context. Uh, getting back to the regulatory efforts now, uh, in the past I've I've heard you speak and you've said something akin to, you know, at Treasury we're tax lawyers, not social scientists. Uh, yet there were several requests for the regulations to address the question of, well, how, how do we go about measuring the effectiveness of this initiative? How do we know that this tax incentive is doing what it's supposed to be doing in the first place? 
your department, the Treasury Department, has no clear mandate to collect and report on all of the data that might best measure the effectiveness of the Opportunity Zone program. But what were you able to do in this regard? And is there anything more that you wish you could have done? We have put together a substantially revised Form 8996, which is the QAF's report to the IRS on making sure that it meets the asset test. And we have changed that doc, and it's available at you know irs.gov backslash draft forms, and then you type in the number 8996. We will now be collecting by QOZB their investments in each census tract. So what that's going to enable us to do is to be able to find out which tracts are getting investment, how much, and then to be able to compare tracts that have received the Opportunity Zone incentive with tracts that have not received the Opportunity Zone incentive. And then you can look at things like what is the income in the, in the OZ track versus the non-OZ track, income, poverty, uh, the types of statistics that I, that uh, Department of Commerce collects on a regular basis. And so we are also working through the uh, National Economic Council and the uh, White House Opportunity Council, the measurement portion of that, to work with uh, Commerce to make sure that we have robust reporting at the census tract level so that we're able to do a good measurement of what the impact of opportunity zones has been. I think to the extent we are interested primarily in the economic betterment of it, of those tracks, I think we will be able to get what we need from the IRS data when combined with census data and other data that the government already collects. The, the thing about it is, is that will take time. The returns are basically available with a year lag, right? And, and everyone wants to know what's going on in opportunity zones now. Has it worked now? And I encourage patience on this. This uh, this incentive has a it has a life through 2026 as far as new money going in, and for that money to continue to work in the low income community through 2047. So these are these are things that will occur over time, and. I think that's the biggest shortcoming in what we're doing is that it may not happen quickly enough to make everyone happy, but I think that it will provide the information that's needed for us to do uh, an economic evaluation of whether or not 
opportunity zones has, has had a real impact in these communities. That said, um, we're certainly willing to work with Congress if they feel that there is other information that we can't get through our tax administration authority um, to you know, enhance the, the data collection process. Good. So there is there is some action that you've taken already, and it may take some time. It may be another year or two before some of that initial data starts trickling in. But you know, patience is the word, I suppose, and 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 yeah. we will we will get some some sort of reporting, some sort of data coming through Treasury and and the IRS in due time. Do you anticipate any further action by Congress in regards to data collection reporting as well? That that may. Uh, complement the efforts that you're undertaking at Treasury? Well, certainly there was an interest in that towards the end of last year. I do not know whether uh, the coming year in Congress will have a lot of time for legislating that type of thing. All right. So again, I suppose time will tell on that I don't, issue I don't know, as well. I don't, I don't know whether I don't know whether it's still can whether whether the interest that was there in November continues. You know, this spring. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, especially in an election year. I'm not sure how much might get done anyway. So, right. uh, but yeah, t- time will tell there again as well. Um, well, I, yeah, I, I'm I'm hopeful that we do get some reporting uh, down the road at some point. Understood that it it will take a little bit of time for the data to trickle in and become available. Uh, what are Treasury's estimates for capital raising for capital flowing into these opportunity zone communities? And do you know? Is it is it is it too soon to tell, maybe, or, or, or do you know if qualified opportunity funds are on pace to hit these estimates? Well, we we have not really changed our $100 billion estimate. Uh, we still think that that's a good number for what the private sector may be able to put into these communities in a tax-advantaged fashion. See my earlier comment on everything we learn through the tax system occurs with the lag. That's also true uh, in terms of the uh, investments of costs, how much costs are, are taking in. But you read what other people are doing. You know, Novogratic basically seems to think that maybe 12 to 15 came in this year, putting words in their mouth. But but you know something in that. And that seems to me to be uh, consistent with a $100 billion program between now and 2026. Because I think, I think OZ investment will grow um, in the next two years. Now people have the guidance they need in order to proceed confidently. Uh, it'll take time for people to get comfortable with the mechanics, but once people, once investors start seeing other people investing in opportunity zones and see that you know it's not um, it's not it's not any more risky as a structure than other things that you might undertake. But then I think you know it'll start to, it'll start to snowball for for the next couple of years. Right. Well, I hope I hope you're right there. I I uh, I think 
you know, obviously there was that big push toward the end of 2019 to get in. There was a lot of pressure for some investors to get in to take full advantage of mm-hmm. the full benefit of the program, which is the 15% basis step up on the original gain that went away on December 31, 2019. Uh, but of course, there are still uh, the, the 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 main tax so incentives are still, still 10% there. 10% for two years, right? Right. Right. Two still 10% for two years, and still the big benefit. Uh, at the back end, uh, excluding all capital gains um, from investment within the Opportunity Zone, uh, within the Opportunity Zone funds, and and of course the tax deferral on the original gain until uh, the end of 2026. So yeah, obviously you know the the bulk of the tax incentive still exists. You're kind of just I, I think all you missed if you missed that 2019 year end deadline is you're missing the cherry on top of the of the very large <laughs> hot fudge Sunday, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I put it before as, as it was it was an extra incentive for early adopters. That's right. That's exactly that's exactly what it is. Did you have anything more to say about what OZ trends you anticipate in the coming years? I think we are going to see what creativity exists out there in the economy. I, I do believe that we'll see more businesses, more non-real estate plays. Uh, One of the things that I think once people who are thinking about starting new businesses or growing businesses, when when they realize that Opportunity Zones is for them and they can put their startup in leased space, in a QOZB, in a, in a qualified opportunity zone and be a QOZB, I think that's going to encourage people to think about where they may want to start up their businesses. Um, I think it'll take a little bit of time for folks to to get that it's not just a straight real estate play, and I think that will happen more in, in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm hopeful of that trend as well. I think uh, a lot of real estate, obviously, at the beginning, for a variety of reasons, uh, the regulations were more clear for real estate uh, after the first tranche was issued by your department. Um, and you know, in in some sense, you can think of the real estate as the infrastructure that needed to get laid down in these opportunity zones. And and hopefully, in coming years, we'll see some 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 businesses, some startups, some operating businesses uh, come into the these low income communities, these opportunity zone tracts. Um, as well, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yes, yes, we're both we're both hopeful that we'll see some some creativity in the marketplace, as you say, Dan. When we spoke in April of last year, um, and I, I heard you speak um, that last spring, also, you 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 seemed discouraged by the amount of activity by some of the nation's CDFIs and and similar institutions. You agreed with me that they seemed slow to get into the Opportunity Zone game. Do you have any update there? Have you seen any progress in that regard from from those types of lending institutions? Yeah, I have not. I have not seen um, as much activity there as I would hope. Uh, but I, I think CDFIs. Now that new markets has been uh, expanded or extended again, I think now you may see more trying to bring CDFIs and new markets and all of these 
incentives into play in the opportunity zones in, in coming months. But I haven't seen a lot of uh, CDFI activity per se. And uh, somewhat related, um, the Community Reinvestment Act, those regulations are currently being rewritten. Proposed regs were actually issued by the FDIC and OCC uh, last month in December of 2019. And if approved, if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, C, CRA credits would be granted for any community development that provides financing for or supports qualified opportunity funds. Do I have that right? And what, what do you see as being the implications of, of that uh, incentive for banks that are subject to CRA regulations? Well, I think, uh, I think that the proposed regulations confirm what many of us thought, which is that if an opportunity zone project is taking place in a CRA in assessment area that you can receive CRA credit for it while taking advantage of the OZ incentive. Um, I've always felt that that was um, implied, right? But to say that that actually should be the policy, should make people comfortable that they're able to do that now. I do not know how long it will take for um, CR, a CRA regulation to make its way through. Apparently, the Federal Reserve seems to have some reservations about what uh, OCC and FDIC has put put out. So, so this may be uh, a longer road, but but I do think that there is a kernel there that says, yeah, um, there's no problem of getting CRA credit for an OZ project that I think will be helpful. Yeah, just some additional supportive opportunity zones by another wing of the federal government. I, I know that um, I think that's part of what the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council uh, is is attempting to do is to kind of uh, channel all of these federal resources into the opportunity zones program and 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 certainly the regulations from Treasury are a large part of it. Um, the efforts by different departments, including the Housing and Urban Development Department and and possibly these Community Reinvestment Act regulations, uh, kind of all steering the ship in the same same direction. Right. And, and EDA, I think, is doing good work out there. EDA has uh, funds that are available to help support opportunity zones, labor for training, uh, education. Um, there are what's what's nice about the council is that if you want to try and do something to improve these low-income communities, there are other resources besides opportunity zones that can that can help you to develop a thriving business in them. And the council has made it a little bit, has heightened the, the need throughout the federal community and is also making the wider community aware that, that 
if you want to do this, you're not alone. There's other there's other things that we can do that can help support you while you're getting the business in the LIC going. And I think that's that's great. That may be the the extra push that can encourage something to happen, a business to to grow and employ that might not have happened otherwise. And it's really that emphasis on building businesses, growing businesses, getting people to work and live and revitalize these low-income communities that, that, that we're doing it for. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's great. And the council's been a tremendous resource in that regard, and I'm sure they will continue to be uh, in, in, into the future. Um, Dan, will we see any additional clarifications or updates to the IRS regulations on qualified opportunity funds in coming months and years, or is is this the final word from from Treasury? Well, I alluded earlier when we were talking about the uh, failure of a QAF to qualify that there may be a need in the future to provide more guidance about that. Well, when does a when does a QAF cease to be a QAF? I can see there being something about that in the future. Uh, I think, but as I say, no no time horizon. I, I think we need to get experience with the incentive to see what other guidance would be helpful, what kind of clarifications. I think we are intending to use the frequent, frequently asked questions on the IRS webpage as well as forms and instructions as a way to um, fill in details where there may be uncertainty about what we mean and what we put out uh, on the 13th of January. And so we'll be doing that. I think you'll see more of that in the coming months than you will see a uh, proposed uh, or a notice of proposed rulemaking, proposed regulations. Understood. So unlikely that uh, we're going to get issued another 500 pages of of rules making yes, <laughs> anytime soon. I'm sure you're 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 happy to avoid that as well. Absolutely. And what I, and what I want to say is, you know, don't don't use the prospect that there may be more regulations as an excuse for not investing. No, of course not. Now is the time. You have everything you need to move you forward. You really do have everything you need, and and. Of course, we always reserve the right to provide uh, additional guidance that's going to help taxpayers and tax administrators uh, have clarity on what the rules of the road are. I think that's to everybody's advantage. But I think there's enough out there, and we, we put enough breadth in what we had done between proposed and final that uh, market participants really should be free to to know what they can structure and to work with within the rules as they now exist. I agree 100%. No excuse anymore, as we said. No excuse. Dan, uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time today. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. For our, for our listeners out there, again, I'll have show notes on today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast, and there you'll find links to all of the resources that Dan and I discussed on today's show. I'll be sure to link to Treasury's response to Congressman Wyden's 
request for information. And I'll also have links to the full text of the final regulations and uh, all of the other resources that, that we discussed today. Uh, Dan, again, uh, thanks. This has, been, this has been great. It has been a pleasure. Uh, look forward to seeing you in person at, at some conference in coming months. Looking forward to it, Dan. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.